I've had this experience. You go to a family reunion, or maybe you walk into the cafeteria, the lunch table, or perhaps it's a place of work or a social gathering of some kind. You walk in, and somebody is there talking, holding court, expounding upon the way it is, telling everybody their opinion about a particular matter. And it's not so much that that they're sharing with confidence their opinion, it's more the way that this person is doing it. And you think to yourself, something is missing. There's something missing here. What is it? You think this person is, is very knowledgeable. But perhaps unwise. Someone who has a lot of knowledge about a particular matter and sharing it in a way that lacks this secret sauce of relationship. And it's wisdom. In a minute, what I want to when I was share with you, I want you to, to, to note as I read from James chapter 3 that there is this secret sauce to relationship that makes any teamwork, whether you're talking about a, a professional team, whether you're, you're talking about uh, you know, your business, your work, whether you're talking about a family, a friendship, a marriage, there's a secret sauce of relating to each other. And there are three ingredients to that wisdom within relationship that makes a team work, that makes relationship work. Patrick Lynch, the only uh, coins it, he says it, it, it's, it's to be humble and hungry and smart. And that's people smart, emotional intelligence. Humble, hungry, and smart. See if you pick it up as I read to you from James chapter 3 beginning with verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. May God bless us today through the reading and reflection upon this, his holy word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you bless this word that it may bear fruit in life, not just in thought, not just in word, but also in deed. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to picture yourself as a baker 
and you're looking in an oven and you're wondering, is it, is it all going to work out, right? You just you mixed up the recipe and you put it all together and you stuck it in the oven and you're wondering, is everything going to, is it going to rise? Is it going to come together? Is it going to taste right? Today, there are three ingredients to wisdom. Three ingredients that make wisdom the secret sauce of relating well, of sharing your opinion, of engaging in the issues of the day, in being able to relate to people around the, the, the cafeteria table or the work you know, conference room or the family reunion. Three ingredients that help us engage in, and make team work. It's to be humble and hungry and smart. First, let's look at, at humble. Humble is, is often mischaracterized and confused for false humility. I remember talking to a woman one time. She said, she said, she knew I was a Christian. She said, I can't, I can't believe you, 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 you people believe these things. I mean, I just couldn't feel that bad about myself. I, I just, you know, I, I believe that when I die, I'm going to come back as a beautiful butterfly. And I said, I mean, I, I said, well, great. How do you know that? She didn't have an answer. But she characterized Christians as thinking poorly of themselves. Is that how you think of yourself? When someone pays you a compliment, what do you say? What's the best rejoinder to a compliment? When someone says, you know, hey, you did a great job, or I really love that thing you did. You know, do you say, oh, you know, it wasn't that great. Do you do that? That's called false humility. False humility. You know they're right, right? <laughs> you, knew, you already knew they were right. And, and, and you're like, pour it on. Come on, pour it on. No, it wasn't so great. Yeah, pour it on. The best response is just to say thank you. Otherwise, you're insulting them. No, you're, you're, you're wrong. It's not great. It's also, to, it's also to make more of a fuss about yourself than about the thing that the person is complimenting, just to receive it graciously, to say thank you. Because, because humility is not as that woman characterized it. It's not thinking less of ourselves, right? We should walk around with this definition. C.S. Lewis gives the best definition of humility of all time. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. What's happening here in this passage is there's, there is this, this burgeoning of the faith and of community, but people are beginning to become competitive with each other. And James, the brother of Jesus... Did you know that? that we, we can read the very words of the brother of Jesus who's telling us, here's what the early church is dealing with. You think, oh gosh, you know, things in, back in the early church were very ideal. Not necessarily so. See, we're not born into this selflessness. We're not born into it. It's something we have to put on and put on and put on. It's something we have to, to train and practice. 
And so James is speaking into a community where people are becoming sort of competitive, even with the truth. They're taking the truth, and instead of finding a confidence that's beyond them, they're adopting it as an identity that boasts about themselves. You see what the difference? It, it's so huge. You walk into that, that, that family reunion, or you walk into that cafeteria or that workplace, and someone's holding court, and you think, something's missing. What's missing? There's some... Humility that's missing. And what is it that makes the difference? It's to place your confidence not in yourself, but beyond yourself. What James is saying is, here is that, that people are taking the truth and they're using it to assert themselves. He's saying, look, if, if you have this kind of ambition, if you're struggling with this ambition, he's sort of speaking to the people who are so arrogant. He's saying, you know, if you're struggling with this, then, then just be quiet. <laughs> That's what he says. If you're struggling with selfish ambition and arrogance, just, just keep your mouth closed. That's what James is saying. But if your confidence is in the thing itself, if your confidence is not in yourself but beyond yourself, speak up. It, it's a little bit like this. The, the people, people who have a confidence beyond themselves... They, they stand in such a way, their posture is in such a way that isn't self-assertive. It's not, it's not putting themselves up and others down. It's just simply having a confidence that points beyond them. And we can tell the difference, can't we? You know, it's amazing. When, when, we, when we feel uh, insecure, a lot of times we overcompensate by pushing ourselves out there, and that becomes arrogant. And it makes us feel better, but don't we always recognize it in somebody else? Isn't it amazing how we do the same things that we loathe in other people? We see it in other people. We can, we can smell it on them, right? And yet we do it ourselves. And we think that it's, it's winning. We think it's, it's doing something good, but it's not. But here, picture this. You know, when they were building the Golden Gate Bridge, people, the workers that were walking on those I-beams and and, and creating this framework for this great, over this great expanse. They were very sure-footed. But for every million dollars that, that was, was being spent on bridge construction in that day, one worker would die. And so for the Golden Gate Bridge, they were determined to do something different. They, they, they spent almost $150,000 just on a net underneath the framework. So they built this net, and it was amazing how people walked around with confidence. But picture that. Where, where's their confidence? Well, it's in my ability to, you know, to walk, you know, like a ballerina. I, I, it's in my ability. No. P people fall, fell so much less because they had a confidence beyond themselves. There was a net underneath them. And so productivity went up, and, and the way that they carried themselves was different. That's the picture that James is painting here of humility. It's not to think less of yourself. It's to think of yourself less. It's to, to have full confidence but it's a confidence that's beyond yourself. Do you see how that bears witness to a bigger picture? 
Do you see how that bears witness to your faith? Do you see how that creates a winsome quality to your life? Because you're not boosting you. Your confidence in what you're saying around the lunch table, in what you're saying at the family reunion, is giving you a sure-footedness, but it's not, it's not putting you up and others down. It's pointing past you to something beyond you. It's not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. That, that's the first ingredient to wisdom, the thing that makes a team work. It's humility, humble, hungry, and smart. Now, let's look at hungry. Hungry for a minute. Now, hungry, hungry is, is to have a drive and a purpose that's greater than you, that looks past you. Humility and drive together. Drive. Drive is in a purpose that's not you. It's not asserting you. It's, it's a, a purpose that's greater than you. That's the second ingredient of wisdom, second ingredient that makes any kind of team work, whether it's a friendship or a marriage or, or, a, or, a, or, or an office team or, 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 a, or a sports team or a family. It's drive, a purpose greater than you. I remember this story, and it's, I love this story because it's this idea of having this drive and this energy that's beyond you in a purpose greater than you is so difficult to describe because it's a stewardship. It's a stewardship of your life and your responsibilities and your, even your points of view to steward them as though you were taking care of them, taking care of something that belongs to someone else. That's that's a real drive. That's an eternal drive. That's a drive that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of wired into eternity. A drive that's beyond you. This, this story, I think, captures it very well. There's, there's, a, there's a guy who, who worked on this assembly line in, in a plant, and his, his job was to, to put on four bolts. He was just, that was his job, to, to put on four bolts. And, and that's what he did all day, every day. But, but his, his manager, his, his, his boss, noticed that he was a great encourager. He, he noticed that, that everybody around him was energized because, because he took initiative with the people in his sphere of influence. What he brought to the table, what he brought into the conversation, what he brought into the workplace was a stewardship of the big picture, a sense of drive that, that was beyond himself. He took initiative in ways that was more than the four bolts. And so he called this, this fellow in and sat him down in, in his office and he said, I want to give you a raise, uh, a big raise, because I want to give you a special responsibility. He said, I want you to continue to put on the four bolts, but I'm not going to be looking at quotas anymore because I want you to have flexibility. I want people to see you working hard, but I want you to move beyond uh, the people that are around you, and, and I want you to do what you're doing every day, and I want you to do it for everybody on the floor. I want you to have this special responsibility, but here's the deal. I don't want you to tell anybody that, you're, that you have this, uh, this unique new role 
I just want it to be part of the way that you live, part of how you conduct yourself. I just want to enlarge your sphere of influence. And so, and so uh, he was given this responsibility, and the productivity of that entire operation began to go up and up and up. You see, it's, it's initiative, it's drive. It talks about meekness in, in, in chapter, in page, uh, in chapter, in page, in verse 13. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you by his good deeds? Let him show it in meekness of wisdom. Meekness is a, another misunderstood word. I think because it rhymes with weakness, we think of it as something less than. There's a great picture of meekness, there's an old expression of meekness. He's as meek as an ox. Meek as an ox. That's a picture of controlled strength. Controlled strength. Picture that ox or a team of oxen. They're they're walking along. There's a sense of consistency, but there's a purpose beyond them. They know what they're about. The meekness there is, is, is a controlled strength. And so I don't think God is calling us to dial down uh, our initiative. He's not calling us to dial down our confidence. He's not calling us to dial down uh, the way that we engage people, even with our points of view. But the way we do it matters. It's, it's to point to a purpose beyond us, to do it in meekness, in controlled strength. What was, you know... Let's contrast that for a minute with the the original problem that we're dealing with, and that is original sin. Where was Adam when Eve uh, ate the forbidden fruit? Where was Adam? Think about that for a minute. Was Adam, he was out out fly fishing somewhere. Adam Adam was just sort of, he was out just kind of maybe climbing a mountain. It says in Genesis 3.6 where Adam was. Let me read it to you now. She took of this fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I wonder if he was just sort of standing by, watching what would happen. (laughs) And later the excuses come, you know, Lord, this woman that you gave me, you know, it's your fault. He was standing by there, passive. Passive. You see, this is the the opposite of that key ingredient, that drive, that hunger to engage the people around you, to engage the team, the marriage. It's it's to say that that if, if there's something that's in between you, uh, if there's a potential conflict, you, you think, you no, know, don't we think sometimes that if we're the ones to bring it up, then we created the problem and we're going we're gonna to be criticized, right, for, for, for sort of surfacing the thing. But think of it this way. If you put something on the table that's going to be uncomfortable to talk about, if you initiate it and you do it with humility and drive, what you're saying to the person is, you're worth, you're worth it. 
You're worth the discomfort. I will step into this difficult conversation because you're worth it. I care about you. It's not you that created the problem. When you put something on the table, it says, you matter to me. That's a meekness, a controlled strength. It's, it's a hunger. So to be humble, to be hungry, the first two ingredients of wisdom that make a team work. Humble, hungry, and smart. Again, this is emotional intelligence. People smart. We know, uh, we know a lot of people who have, who have you know, maybe you know somebody who has a high IQ but a low EQ, right? You know, you know, sometimes that's me. I know. I feel that sometimes. It's like uh, I'm the one who's sort of reacting, you know, and I, I'm the one who, who uh, you know, somebody says something insulting and I just, you know, I get hot and I just want to, I just want to, you know, just sort of fight fire with fire. I want to hit back. That, that's you. That's me. That's, that's us sometimes. But, but see, so, so we have to understand that, that one of the key ingredients to making a team work is to have a, a high EQ or have a, a high emotional intelligence quotient. I was, I was watching this debate one time and, and, and the players were getting really hot. I was watching this debate and this was so incredible to me. Uh, because it was, it was very dramatic, and, and the person and, and the issue, you know, it doesn't matter. Pick pick any issue, it, you know. We, we all know what the issues are these days, but you know, but but so it was one of these issues, and and this person was was getting really really upset with this other person. And I was watching this develop, and and so here comes this what's called an ad hominem argument. When you when you don't have a good argument then you attack the person, right? You attack the person. And so, you know, see, you, you can turn on the news every night and see this happen, right? The person starts to lose the argument, and so they attack the person, right? I, I remember this happening to me one time before I finish that story. I'm going to tell you another quick story. I remember, remember, remember somebody uh, doing this to me one time, and they said this, and it was very, sort of very shady the way they said it. They said this. They said, has anybody ever said this to you, by the way? Are you one of those people who... Are you one of those people who thinks, right? That's an ad hominem. That's an attack on you. They're losing the argument. Now, now let's go back to the other story. Here, here's this debate, and this person attacks them and insults them, right? I mean, cutting. It was just, it was a horrible insult, a very big put down. And, and this person, the reaction was this. He said, he said this, he said, I think you're missing my point. <laughs> Just like that. He said, I, I, I think you're missing my point. Powerful. Because everybody watching realizes that this person has been insulting. This person has insulted the other person. And the other person, to, to not react to it, it's powerful, it's humble. But it's hungry, right? It's pointing, to, it's pointing to a confidence beyond him. It's pointing to a purpose beyond him. But more than that, it embraces the other person. What does it take to, to not react to somebody else? What does it take? Think about it. It takes something. 
It takes something that James is talking about here. It takes something. It says, it says at the very end, it says, when, when the baker's looking in the oven, he's seeing, he's trying to see something particular that's developing. What is it in that person's life that keeps them from reacting? What is it that's the fruit? What is that key ingredient that makes, that makes the dough rise? What is it? Can you put a name on it? What is it? Put yourself in that situation. What keeps you from reacting? What is that thing? I'm going to put a word on it in just a minute, but let me read to you again. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. What is it? Well, it's empathy. It's empathy. Can you, in the midst of an argument, a conflict, can you put yourself in the other person's position enough to see what, what's driving their, why they're so upset to attack you? What's threatening that person? If you, can, if you can do that, if you can think, this person is afraid that fill in the blank, and you can identify that, then you can disengage from the personal attacks and you can think we, not me. You see, humility is to not think less of yourself but to think of yourself less. Drive or hunger is to look to a purpose that's bigger than you. And so when we engage with empathy, we're inviting people onto a different common ground, a, a ground that's not just polarized, a ground that's not just divided, a ground that sees a greater framework around all of this. It sees we, we, and not just me. And it requires a certain empathy. In the book, All Quiet on the Western Front, there's a picture of empathy, even in the midst of war. You think, oh, there's no way, Tim, that I could, that I could in the midst of, of a conflict, you know, empathize with another person. You know, when, when I feel attacked, I just feel flooded with emotion. There's no way that I can do that. You know, this person in my life who's just, who's just a, a crank, this person in my life who's always just trying to push my buttons, this person in my life who's just always creating division and conflict, there's no way I can empathize with that person. Well, I'm going to get practical in a minute, but let me give you a picture of what it looks like to empathize with somebody in the most extreme kind of circumstances. Here in World War I, all quiet on the Western Front, there's a man in a foxhole. He's dying. He's British. A German jumps into that foxhole, not realizing he's in there. He begins to pull out his weapon and realizes the man is suffering. He realizes this man is not going to be long for this world. And he no longer feels threatened, even though here is, here's a man who it, it just a few minutes ago might have been shooting at him, and, and he's not sure what to do, and he decides, he decides that he's going to empathize with him. And the Brit takes out pictures of his family and begins to show them to him. And, and even though they can't speak the same language, they share this moment and it's this incredible picture of, of human connection that's beyond the conflict, right? I mean, here is a picture of empathy in the midst of violence. Now, you imagine yourself 
at that table with that person, at the family reunion with the, the second cousin who always has it all figured out, right? Or the, the, or, or the perpetual conflict, the same thing, same ground you keep going over and over and over again. Have you taken the time to put yourself in that person's position where you, you can feel what's bothering them? Do you know what's bothering them? Until you do, you cannot point beyond yourself until you take the time to see what is driving that person's, uh, that, that person's criticism of me. What is, what is making them feel so threatened? Until you can put a word on it, a name on it, then you haven't demonstrated the kind of empathy that we're being called to in this, this chapter of James. You see, James is concerned... His concern is that we would just adopt Christianity and, and the teachings of Jesus as just something centered around ourselves. And what does it take? What does it take to live it? You know, in, in the early church, they didn't, they didn't call each other Christians. The, the Christian is only used in the Bible three times. And usually negatively, right? What they called it was the way. They called, they called the teachings of Jesus the way, the way of wisdom. It's, it's to understand that, that what we're being called to is not information, it's not knowledge alone. It's wisdom, and that means it's a lifestyle. That means you're looking into the oven to see something happen. That means you have an, a knowledge of the ingredients that make relationship work. That means that when you have that conflict and it ended badly, that you take some responsibility rather than Adam standing by and saying, well, it was her fault. You say, how were you? What were you missing? What key ingredient were you missing? You say, well, give me something practical here. How do I start? Well, Here's the first thing. The next time you're in a conflict and you feel hot, here's, here's one thing that you can do. Breathe. Just breathe. Just take a deep breath. My mom used to tell me, count to 10 before you talk to your sister, right? Now, just count to 10, all right? Just you know, take, that, take that advice of you know, giving to a five-year-old or an eight-year-old or whatever it was. Breathe. Then think, what is this person feeling? What is the emotion? Can I, can I tell what's driving this person's criticism of me? Fill in the blank. Then listen. And if nothing else, and I guarantee you this will get you different results than what you're getting, give back to them, not your point of view, but give back to them their point of view. See if you can name for them their point of view. See if you can name the feeling that's driving it. And if you can, just name it. And if it's something that you can affirm with integrity and you can just say, you know, I understand, that makes sense, that would bother me too. Now, guess what you've done? You've been humble. You've been hungry. You've been smart. And you know what you, you get now? You know what you get? You know what you get when you put all those three together, when you're wise like that? Guess what you get? You get a turn. 
<laughs> but only then do you get a turn that will be productive, that will be humble and hungry and smart. That's the kind of community we want to build here. That's the kind of community you want to see in your small group, in your Sunday school. That's the kind of relationships that make people attracted to what you have. That's something that points past you. The world is dying for this. Let's demonstrate it. Let's live this way that we call the Christian life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how we thank you for your demonstration of the way to us, that you walked among us in grace and truth. Help us to be humble. Not to think less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less. Help us to be hungry for a purpose that's past us, that doesn't assert ourselves. Help us to be smart, Lord. To empathize first before we speak. In Jesus' name, amen.